Chapter One of the Copper Princess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, April 2009. The Copper Princess A Story of Lake Superior Mines by Kirk Monroe. Chapter One Startling Introduction of Tom Trefethen. "'Look out there! My God, he is under the wheels!' The narrow-gauge train for Red Jacket had just started from the Hancock station, and was gathering quick headway for its first steep grade, when a youth ran from the waiting-room and attempted to leap aboard the smoker. Missing the step, he fell between two cars, though still clutching a handrail of the one he had attempted to board. With cries of horror— Several of those who witnessed the incident from the station platform averted their faces, unwilling to view the ghastly tragedy that they believed must occur in another instant. At sound of their cries, a neatly dressed young fellow, broad-shouldered, and of splendid physique, who was in the act of mounting the car steps, turned and instantly comprehended the situation. Without a moment of hesitation, he dropped the bag he was carrying, and flung his body over the guard-rail, catching at the supporting stanchions with his knees. In this position, with his arms stretched to their utmost, he managed to grasp the coat-collar of the unfortunate youth who was being dragged to his death. In another moment he had, by a supreme effort, lifted the latter bodily to the platform. Those who witnessed this superb exhibition of promptly applied strength from the station platform give a cheer as the train swept by. But their voices were drowned in its clatter, and the two actors in this thrilling drama were unaware that it had been noticed. The rescued youth sat limp and motionless on the swaying platform where he had been placed, dazed by the suddenness and intensity of his recent terror, while the other leaned against the guard-rail, recovering from his tremendous effort. After a few minutes of quick breathing, he pulled himself together, and helped his companion into the car, where they found a vacant seat. A few of the passengers noted the entrance of two young men, one of whom seemed to be in need of the other's assistance, and glanced at them with meaning smiles. There had been races at Hancock that day, and they evidently believed that these two had attended them. No one spoke to them, however, and it quickly became apparent that the supremest moment in the life of one of the two which would also have been his last on earth but for the other, had passed unnoticed by any of the scores of human beings in closest proximity to them at the time. It was hard to realize this, and for a few minutes the young men sat in silence, dreading but expecting to be overwhelmed with a clamor of questions. It was a relief to find that they were to be unmolested, and when the conductor had passed on after punching their tickets— the one who had rescued the other turned to him with a smile, saying, "'No one knows anything about it, for which let us be grateful.' "'You can bet I'm grateful, mister, in more ways than one,' answered the other, his eyes filling with the tears of a deep emotion as he spoke. "'I won't forget in a hurry that you've saved my life, and from this time on, if ever you can make any use of so poor a chap as me, I'm your man. My name's Tom Trefethen.' and I live in Red Jacket, where I run a compressor for number three shaft of the White Pine Mine. That's all there is to me, 
for I ain't never done anything else, don't know anything else, and expect I'm no good for anything else. So you see, I hain't got much to offer in exchange for what you've just give me. Same time, I'm your friend, all right, from this minute, and I wouldn't do a thing for you, only just what you say. But that goes every time. That's all right, Tom, and don't you worry about trying to make any return for the service I have been able to render you. I won't call it a slight service, because to do so would be to undervalue the life I was permitted to save. Besides, you have already repaid me by giving me a friend, which was the thing of which I stood in greatest need, and had almost despaired of gaining. Why, Mr. Peveril, interrupted the other, Richard Peveril is my name, though the friends I used to have generally called me Dick Peril. Used to have, Mr. Peril? Do you mean by that that you hain't got any friends now? I mean that five minutes ago it did not seem as though I had a friend in the world. But now I have one, who, I hope, will prove a very valuable one as well, and his name is Tom Trefethen. It's good of you to say so, Mr. Peril, though how a poor, ignorant chap like me can prove a valuable friend to a swell like you is more than I can make out. At this the other smiled. I don't know just what you mean by a swell, he said, but I suppose you mean a gentleman of wealth and leisure. If so, I certainly am no more of a swell than you, nor so much, for I have just expended my last dollar for this railroad ticket, and have no idea where I shall get another. In fact, I do not know where I shall obtain a supper or find a sleeping place for to-night, and think it extremely probable that I shall go without either. I hope very much, though, to find a job of work to-morrow that will provide me with both food and shelter for the immediate future. "'Work? Are you looking for work?' asked Tom, gazing at Peveril's natty travelling suit and speaking with a tone of incredulity. "'That is what I have come to this country to look for,' was the smiling answer. "'I came here because I was told that this was the one section of the United States unaffected by hard times,' and because I had a letter of introduction to a gentleman in Hancock, whom I thought would assist me in getting a position. To my great disappointment, he had left town, to be gone for several months, and, as I could not afford to await his return, I applied for work at the Quincy and other mines, only to be refused. "'Is it work in the mines you are looking for?' asked Tom Trefethen, evidently doubting if he had heard aright. "'Yes, that, or any other by which I can make an honest living.' "'Well, sir, I wouldn't have believed it if any one but yourself had told me.' "'But you must believe it, for it is true. And I am now on my way to Red Jacket, because I have been told there is more work to be had there than at any other place in the whole Copper region, or in the State, for that matter.' "'And more people to do it, too.' muttered Tom Trefethen, as he sank into a brown study. By this time the train had climbed from the muddy level of Portage Lake, which, with its recently cut ship canals, bisects Keweenaw Point, making of its upper end an island, and was speeding northward over a rough upland. Its way led through a naked country of rocks and low-growing scrub, for the primitive growth of timber had been stripped for use in the mines. Every now and then it passed tall shaft-houses and chimneys, belching forth thick volumes of smoke, 
which, with their clustering villages, marked the sites of copper mines. Finally, as darkness began to shroud the uninteresting landscape, the train entered the environs of a widespread and populous community, where huge mine buildings reared themselves from surrounding acres of the small but comfortable dwellings of North Country miners. Everywhere shone electric lights, and everywhere was a swarming population. Peveril gazed from his car window in astonishment. "'What place is this?' he asked. "'Red Jacket,' answered his companion. "'That is, it is Red Jacket, Blue Jacket, Yellow Jacket, Stone Pipe, Osceola, White Pine, and several other mining villages, bunched together and holding in all about twenty-five thousand people.' "'Phew! And I expected to find a place of not over one thousand inhabitants.' "'You don't know much about the copper country, that's a fact,' said Tom Trefethen, with the slight air of superiority that residents of a place are so apt to assume towards strangers. "'Why, a single company here employs as many as three thousand men.' "'I am willing to admit my ignorance,' rejoined Peveril. "'But I am also very anxious to learn things, and hope in course of time to rank as a first-class miner.' Therefore, any information you can give me will be gratefully received. To begin with, I wish you would tell me the name of some hotel where my grip will serve as security for a few days' board and lodging. A hotel, Mr. Peril? You can't be feeling so very poor if you are thinking of going to a hotel. Or perhaps you don't know how expensive our Red Jacket hotels are. You see, there is always such a rush of business here that prices are way up. "'Why, they don't think anything of charging two dollars a day, and they get it, too. "'Don't give you anything extra in the way of grub, either. "'I can do lots better than that for you, though. "'There's a plenty of boarding-houses here that'll fix you up in great shape for five a week. "'You just wait here at the station a few minutes while I go and look up one that I know of.' "'Without waiting for a reply, Tom Trefethen hurried from the train,' which was just coming to a stop at the bustling Red Jacket station, and disappeared in the crowd of spectators who had gathered to witness its arrival. Peveril followed more slowly, and depositing the handsome dress-suit-case that he had learned to call a grip in a vacant corner of the platform, prepared to await the return of his only acquaintance in all that community, or in the whole state of Michigan, so far as I know, reflected the young man. As for friends, I wonder if I have any anywhere. This Tom Trefethen claims to have a friendly feeling towards me, and if he comes back, I will try to believe in him. It is more than likely, though, that his leaving me here is only a way of escaping an irksome obligation, and I shouldn't be one bit surprised never to see him again. It seems to be the way of the world, that if you place a fellow under an obligation, he begins to dislike you from that moment. My! If all the fellows whom I have helped would only pay what they owe me, how well fixed I should be at this minute. I could even put up with a clear conscience at one of Tom Trefethen's two-dollar-a-day hotels. What an unsophisticated chap he is, anyway. Wonder what he would say to the Waldorf charges. And yet, only a short time ago, I thought them very moderate. It's a queer old world— and a fellow has to see all sides of it before he can form an idea of what it is really like. I must confess, however, 
that I am not particularly enjoying my present point of view. Must be because I am so infernally hungry. Odd sensation, and so decidedly unpleasant, that if my friend with a Cornish name doesn't return inside of two minutes more, I shall abandon our tryst and set forth in search of a supper. At this point in his dismal reflections, Peveril became aware of a short, solidly built man, having a grizzled beard, and wearing a rough suit of ill-fitting clothing, who was standing squarely before him and regarding him intently. As their eyes met, the newcomer asked abruptly, "'Be thy name Richard, lad?' "'Yes.' "'What's t'other part of it?' "'Peveril. And may I inquire why you ask?' "'Because, lad, in all the world, thee has not a truer friend, nor one more ready to serve thee, than old Mark Trefethen. So come along of me.' and give me a chance to prove my words. End of chapter 1